0: Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist, and happiness researcher, and How To Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, And each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How To Be Sad. My guest today is the remarkable Kathy Rensenbrink best-selling author, former editor at the Bookseller magazine and head of Quick Reads, short books to encourage adults who may not be readers. Because as Kathy believes, after the wheel, the book must be one of the great inventions. Her latest book is Dear Reader, The Comfort and Joy of Books. And she says, reading built me and has always had the power to put me back together again. Because books are a life raft, something Kathy has needed more than once. When she was 17, her younger brother Matty was hit by a car. Matty didn't die, but he didn't recover either. After the accident, he was in a so-called permanent vegetative state, and the family had to endure eight years before they could have a funeral and fully grieve. She wrote about her experiences in an extraordinary memoir, The Last Act of Love. She says, Most of what my writing does is to say, I have endured this most terrible pain and I have survived. I have found ways to make life meaningful and learned how to weave some joy in with the pain. So Kathy, I am so delighted to be talking to you today. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you. How was it putting your heart on a plate in that way with your first book?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think it was necessarily intentional in that way, because I don't, I'm i often not very intentional. I don't really understand what it is I'm doing as I'm doing it. But then afterwards, I sort of think, oh, that's what that was about. But it's, And it's taken me, I've now written four books. And it's only now that I've sort of clocked what it is I'm doing. And what I think I'm doing is, I think I'm offering myself as a point of reflection and reference for other people. And since realising that, I feel really clear about what it is I'm doing. And I'm just, because what I never like to do is I'm not at all um, definitive. I'm not really into conviction. I have very few convictions other than that people should try to be nice to each other. But I'm just saying here it is, this is what I've made of it all, sort of slightly do with it what you will. And then I feel very pleased when that meets, I feel it's a bit like a jigsaw piece. I feel very pleased when that plugs into someone who likes what I've got to offer. And then kind of like try not to worry about it if they don't, you know, it won't be everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> but that's a lovely, I mean, that idea
0: of, um, you know, just seeing if people like it and then it turns out they do. That must feel good, right? This idea of, of kind of not going knowing and then there being such a universal in the specifics of your experiences.
1: Yes, it does feel good. And it also feels exciting. It feels sort of intellectually stimulating. And also in terms of thinking of how not to be sad, I think that it's my various transformative steps from like desperation to, oh, actually I feel okay. Uh, often around curiosity. Like if I can feel curious about what I'm experiencing, you know, I can make the wind change a bit. But also, my big thing is finding out that I'm not alone. And that, for me, I think is why my writing seems to be such a virtuous circle. I write something, usually from a point of view of despair and confusion. And then other people say, oh, I feel I feel better now that you, you feel this way as well. So that does feel like a very good thing. So, I, so at the moment, I'm having a lot of response to my book, Dear Reader, which is about the joy and comfort of books, how they get you through hard times. And it's so joyous because every time someone gets in touch to say how much that book is sort of cheering them up, it makes me feel better. So, you know, I sort of write something and then it makes people feel better and they tell me it's made them feel better and then it makes me feel better. (laughs) I feel very, I always feel very up and down with this stuff. It's not like I, I don't experience recovery in any sort of a linear way. So I'm always still in the trenches with it. So even though, even though writing a book will get me to a particular point, like a couple of weeks later, I'll be, you know sitting in a puddle again and and that so I'll need people or not need but then it's nice when people tell me nice things about my books because often that message comes on a darker day so sometimes I don't think people realize what they're doing for me when they you know because then when I talk back people are often a bit surprised especially on email people say oh I didn't think you'd respond Um, and I'm like why would I not respond to that yeah it's lovely you've made my day. I was interested, yeah, when I I think
0: I read you saying about when you finished your first book, you, you mentioned this sort of high and this feeling, oh, maybe I'm fixed. Maybe I've done it now. And that's certainly familiar. And I've, I've spoken to the Harvard professor about this, this idea of arrival fallacy of thinking when we do this thing, one thing that we want or that we've been working towards, then we will feel better and we'll feel fixed. And of course, we may know intellectually that that's not the case, but it's it's still a hard thing to come to terms with. Knowing that now from your first book, is that something you still experience?
1: Um, I think a rival fallacy is such a good thing to learn about. And I only learned about it fairly recently. I can't remember where I encountered it, but it was a bit of a life changer, actually, because I do feel because I did feel better when I finished my first book, but then was very surprised to then feel after that that I didn't feel better again. And I, and it's really helped me to see that external, I mean, external things don't really matter, sadly. I mean, you'd think they do, wouldn't you? But I mean, they don't, or they don't for me. And it was really helpful to realise that, you know, it's like the person that wants a Porsche on the drive. They wake up, they get the Porsche, you know, they slog their guts out, they work for years, they get the Porsche and they wake up the next day, they're still the same person with a Porsche.
0: Probably with bird poo on it
1: yeah exactly and then it'll quickly go out of date or whatever it is cars do i'm not material in my desires so i don't it doesn't work for me in terms of a Porsche. there's never really things i want i don't want things i think i thought that writing a book that people would like would make me feel better and actually it doesn't it's nice there's lots of great things about it it's exciting but it is helpful now that i've stopped thinking that an external thing or even something I'm going to do that is going to change anything fundamentally, really anything in the long term. That's been, that has been really helpful. I do find understanding very helpful. I mean, not everybody does, but for me to understand what it is I'm doing. And I guess then back to the function of writing, if I can understand what I'm doing and if I can then write it down or communicate it to other people, and then they say like, Oh yeah, I do that too. <laughs> that really does help. So I'm always sort of on the lookout, I suppose. I'm always questing to find, I guess approaches where you know ways ways to live ways to what well, ways to be in the ways to be in the world I suppose.
0: So that's that curiosity again isn't it?
1: Yeah I think curiosity is a superpower I think. It's really interesting because a lot of people go a bit mad when they have their first book out. Do they what do they do?
0: I'm fascinated. I
1: think it's because often not always but often people who write have always wanted to do it. You know they've been big readers. They've been stuck into Anne of Green Gables as well. They've always wanted to do it. Books take a really long time, and it's hard to get them published. So, by the time you get to that, and of course, in the culture as well, there's a there's a fairly strong idea that being a writer is great. So your book's about to come out. Everybody's saying to you like, "Oh, you're living the dream. You're living the dream," and it just doesn't feel like that inside. And instead, it's quite destabilising because attention is destabilising. And even the teeny tiny little bit of fame that you get for you know writing our sort of book, which isn't. You know, it's not sort of rock star famous, but just that thing of people taking a picture and being in the paper and people knowing you who you don't know. I, I think it's so destabilizing that, I mean, I'm no longer surprised that famous people are completely bonkers. I'm more amazed that any of them get through the day. It's so weird. So there's all of that. And I think people find it difficult to cope with. But I also think it's because they thought all their lives, they've thought that having a book published and people liking it would make them feel good. And it doesn't. And not only does it not really make them feel good, but because all the good stuff about it, all the stuff you think that's going to make you feel good, that it's really just ego stuff, you know, like the Sunday Times bestseller list. The trouble with all that stuff is and it's really alarming how quickly it transmutes from, oh, I'm on the Sunday Times bestseller list to, oh, gosh, I won't be on the Sunday Times bestseller list next week. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: I'm not on it now. What a disaster. Yeah.
1: And I did think, like, maybe you know why does this not feel nicer than I thought I would and it's like well maybe like do I need to be more famous do I need to sell more books do I would I and I think at one point I probably thought maybe and I didn't think this through in this way but I probably would have thought that more more success would do it that I hadn't had enough mm-hmm. whereas I I've, I've really clocked now that it's it, that it that the externals don't really matter and I do feel quite good that I have tweaked that because an awful lot of people don't ever clock it, so they keep chasing it. Whether it's Porsches or whether it's romantic relationships or whether it's, I heard, I heard about someone recently who's always moving house because they always think the next house is gonna you know, do everything, but of course it doesn't. So they move again because there's something wrong with the house, but that's a rival fallacy, isn't it? That, I mean, I, I don't know this person. Maybe there's always something wrong with the house, but I doubt it's it. It's a really bad luck.
0: I wanted to ask you about that as well. Two things here. I have a whole list of questions, but I'm going to dart around because it's too fascinating. Um, I'm very interested that you left London. And having written so warmly about London, I was very surprised when, when that bit of it happened. And I wonder whether that makes it slightly easier as well. I certainly feel removed from London that there is more anonymity and there's there's less pressure in that way. I'm sure there's much, much, many other things to recommend Cornwall, but how was, in terms of setting and leaving London, how was that for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one. And of course, the, this is one of these moments where I do feel I, it's very important I check my privileges because I don't want to aggravate anyone who would dream of living by the sea. I mean, I did I moved to Cornwall because I wanted to be near my parents. And as it happens, they live, they live where I was born, in Falmouth at the coast. So... That was the motivator. I wanted to be near my parents. It is wonderful living near the sea, but I will admit I really miss London. And it sounds like a mad thing to say, especially in the midst of the virus, because I'm sure life has been an awful lot easier for us down here. And of course, economics being what they are, down here we live in a house with a garden, whereas in London we lived in a flat. So I'm sure everything's been much easier for us, but I still really miss, I really miss London. I just, I feel in London, you can just be anything. And because everyone's come from somewhere else, you don't feel, um, it's very, very strange Cornwall. Cause I was born here and my grandparents and great grandparents are in the cemetery you know, the English side of my family. But I don't really feel like I belong here. And, of course, I don't look like I belong here. And I've got a funny foreign name now because of my Dutch husband. So I don't feel like a local or get treated by a local. And it just seems to matter down here in a way that in in London, like, nobody nobody cares. No, in a yeah. bad, bad way sometimes. But predominantly, I would feel in a, in a good way. But, of course, nostalgia as well. I think nostalgia is a big enemy when it comes to how not to be sad. Because I'm now nostalgic for London, even as, you know, even as I'd know that probably it would have been a nightmare (laughs) living there. Nostalgia is something I really keep an eye on because I don't drink alcohol anymore either. Oh, at all now. Okay. And that's a very good thing for me. And I'm a very happy non-drinker and everything. But then the main thing I have to do to stay as a happy, sober person is not mope and not give in to nostalgia. That's quite London-linked as well. If I sort of slightly, I could go on a quite poisonous daydream where... I remembered, I don't know, it was always the free posh booze that used to get to me. That was the most difficult stuff to turn down. So if I remembered, like, oh, I remember when I used to drink champagne at the Desmond Elliott party. At-
0: but no one's doing that anyway right now. It's fine.
1: Nobody's doing it now. And probably was it ever as good as I thought it was? I mean, who knows? I was drunk. So it's kind of- <laughs> but it's that it's that pattern of moping for what once was rather than getting on with what's in front of you, I think.
0: It sounds as like though you're a very good getting on with what's in front of you person now. I I loved your phrase about drinking in terms of when you were talking about watching it for your mental health and when you could feel yourself on the edge of something of just saying, I'm, I'm going to stop for a while, because that's a really hard thing to say to friends and family. I also had people prefer drunk Helen. Well, drunk Helen's having a little rest right now. <laughs> if you're thinking about arrival fallacy in terms of relationships as well, you are, of course, very honest in your work and, and very good at kind of saying well yeah it's it's not what i expected your your first marriage was to a good man who's still a good friend of yours but it it wasn't what you were after and do you think you went into your marriage now with different expectations is that has that been helpful
1: i do actually and it's something that um my uh, I discuss a lot with both my husbands. Um, my, my my ex-husband is a great friend of me and my husband. And we're all, you know, with his wife, and we have a sort of a family relationship, I think it is. But I definitely fear, and I, I, I have no regrets in that we've all ended up in a good place and stuff. But when I look back, we just didn't, we made no efforts. Basically, the first time we were, you know, we were really, really, really madly keen on each other. The first time, ever that pretty much that he annoyed me I just decided it was all over you know he wasn't the person I thought and I'm, I think a bit vice versa as well we just made no efforts and it seems to me now that we threw it away very easily whereas I think second marriages can be good in that way I kind of my husband and I have a bit of a running joke that you know I, I kind of like I didn't try in my first marriage but I try really hard in my second one that's so interesting huh but I have a different expectation of, of... My novel, actually, which I've just finished, is all about... As My editor's crafted this nice line for the blurb, which I think says, the deeper realities of marriage and parenting.
0: Oh, fantastic. I can't wait.
1: I just think, especially if there's small children involved, it's just so not what you would have possibly thought it might be like. I remember a friend of mine, lovely, lovely woman. She was 27, and she said to me, I, just, I want to meet someone, and... Meet someone who I want to have children with, and be with. What should I look for? I just said look for someone you can imagine arguing with in a few years' time over whose turn it is to stack the dishwasher. That is how it's, That's how it ends up. But again, I think that there's a very much a modern tendency just to almost like swallow down all the rom coms and the advertising and the yeah. fairy tale stuff, and it's just all complete nonsense. Well, I mean, books. I think it's one of the areas actually where fiction arguably is really bad for us because, yes, you know, Mister Darcy won't be Mister Darcy when he's, you know, putting the kids to bed and they have both both parents are working from home and they're cleaning the bins. They've got a Zoom at the same time and you know, blah blah. It's like, and I and, and also modern life. I think is that modern life, even for people who are very fortunate. I have plenty of money. is really hard because I think if both parents are trying to pursue an identity that's outside of the home and the children that's just tricky and i used to like when my when we lived in london and we were both working outside the home i remember when our son got chickenpox like i mean there's nothing that throws a grenade into a slightly precariously balanced marriage than an unscheduled child illness and it was awful because it became one of us had to cancel it became really quickly obvious what how we respectively judged each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, like a pandemic, yeah, sharing homeschooling, yeah.
1: And I wasn't the person that cancelled. I did a piece of, like, really quite unpleasant one-upmanship. Did you? Well, yeah, when I look back on it, I don't think it was very nice. My husband still worked for Waterstones then, and he, he said, I've got to go and do blah, blah, because we've got to present to James next week. James Dort's the managing director of Waterstones. And at that time, I was working for Quick Reads and had a trustee meeting, and James was one of my trustees, and that's what I was doing. And I said, I've got a meeting this morning with James directly, so I've got to go. And I thought afterwards, like, what a massive bitch. I mean, just like so hot. But again, it's like, but I think it's quite a, I mean, it's a tedious story, and I can't believe I've shared it with you. But it's that, that's what having an ill small child does. Like it takes mm. away your ability to frame things in a nice way, or be patient, or say, "Oh well, we can work at you know all that stuff before you had a child that you that you might think like if somebody said to you like well, say say that you so you're both working and the child gets chicken pox what do you do?" And I'd have said like, "Well, we'd probably make time to remind each other that we love each other, and then then make a decision that works for everyone." Whereas, <laughs> as in uh, in the moment, I was just like, you know. Sorry, pal, I'm
0: off. <laughs> That's so interesting. But how do you h- how do you marry that, no pun intended, with with the kind of the creative and imaginative world of books? Because you no, know, not Mr. Darcy aside, I liked reading that I think you mentioned an unnamed friend of yours had an affair because she wanted to know if it felt like what it how it's described in books. But you know, that the world is so big when you read, and then real life can be about bins and dishwashers how how do you sustain what are your secrets to sustaining a long ra- relationship and parenting whilst having this world of books and being such a voracious reader as you are
1: well i think in that sense books help in the, the escapism as it is i don't really like i'm not that interested in romance actually i mean i do really li- pride and prejudice is one of my favorite novels but i read it for the social comedy aspect And I don't think I was ever that bothered, even when I was like right bang in the zone. I think I always preferred reading about people being horrible to each other. So definitely books and reading is a great sort of entertainment and distraction. But I would also say I've just become really interested in the dishwasher. And just yesterday, because we've got a new dishwasher, because the old one broke, and again, broken kitchen appliances, that if ever I do do completely throw in the towel, it will be linked to a, a a malfunctioning banking app and a broken kitchen appliance. But we were puzzling over the dishwasher together because we couldn't get the new dishwasher to work. And my husband was getting increasingly cross and stressed about it. And I kept trying to make silly jokes and he wasn't really responding. And then I said to him, I said, this is just like a scene in my novel, right? (laughs) At which point everyone else I know in the world would think that was hilarious and would whatever. And he just like gave me this sort of slightly sulky (laughs) look. <laughs> but it was funny but i've just beca- but again you just need loads of patience and tolerance and acknowledgement that you know i'm flawed he's you know we're all flawed human beings also we're you know we're well intentioned we're doing our best so and i do think it's a little bit about not being uh greedy there's a su- there's a line i really like in um the whole thing about not having affairs uh but it might be also because again I, I mean it's not high up on my list of priorities to be honest <laughs> Who's got the time? But there's a line I really like in a, I think it's a Dire Straits song and it's it talks about we fall for pretty strangers and the promises they hold. And I think it's that, I, I mean, I do genuinely think that if I, you know, if I had, to, if you sort of would allow yourself to follow down any of those interesting pathways, you know, those pretty strangers that might hold out offerings, I honestly think I'd just be arguing with them over the dishwasher in Yeah. i would get two or three years of intense eye contact and hand holding and clothes melting off. I'd also do, you know, it wouldn't be good for my son. And yeah, and eventually I'd just be looking at them thinking, oh, God, I don't know if I did do such a good deal because, you know, the other one...
0: He knew how this dishwasher worked,
1: for one thing. Exactly, I do explore all of this in my in my novel and let the characters. I'm so excited. Various things. So my editor said after my characters had been having basically this sort of this sort of like better the devil you know kind of discussion, mm-hmm. uh, my editor said something like, "Be careful, you don't suggest that women can't have exciting relationships and that they should just put up with anyone if they're not too dreadful." Anyway, I told my friend Lizzie that, and she said. Oh, she said, who wants an exciting relationship? She said, that's the last thing I want, an exciting relationship. I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> oh no, I find
0: that faintly depressing.
1: Maybe, Ooh. yeah. can come with
0: your editor on that one. Your lovely, dishwasher-friendly Dutch husband. I am interested, so I am currently living in Denmark and have been here for some, some years and there are kind of people from all over the world here and I often, there are quite a few people locally from the Netherlands and I, sometimes feel as though their approach is fairly similar, the Danish and the Dutch approach. I wonder whether you have learnt, are there are any learnings about how to be sad well from the Netherlands that you have
1: experienced on your travels or from your husband's side of the family? I do really like Dutch people. And what I love about them is the directness. They are yes. very direct. And when you first meet them, that can seem like rudeness. But actually, I I love it. I've taken it on board, I think. In fact, actually, I think a lot of it has seeped into my writing in that, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just try and be really direct and see things as they are and people seem to like it. And you know where you are with the Dutch person. I remember when I was going to meet my husband's family and I said something like, what if they don't like me? And I think I've recently been in a situation in England, meeting someone else and uh, like, as in meeting a friend's girlfriend and everyone being a bit snide about her. I wasn't because I couldn't stand it, but I just thought like, God, people are so awful When when there's a new partner, isn't there everybody thinking they've got a right to judge? And I said, what if they pretend, and he said, oh, he said, I'm sure they will. I said, what if they pretend to like me and then they're mean about me behind my back? He said, I can tell you, if they don't like you, you'll know about it. <laughs> I think there's something very reassuring about that. And it's one of the things, actually, that I really love and honour about my marriage, um, when I'm not moaning about the dishwasher, is, is just that there's a sort of a, an honesty, a lack of uh, sort of game playing and manipulation, I think, sort of a straightforward robustness that i highly value my husband finds english people difficult in that whole thing of not saying what they mean and again he just can't really it kind of like can't cope if i don't say what i mean so we do a bit of that he says what's wrong and i say i'm fine and he'll say like well well you're not but i can't work it out so you're just gonna have to tell me <laughs> i find that useful um
0: my mother-in-law Sorry. is
1: an extremely nice woman and her life motto in dutch is leven and laten leven which is live and let live and i think again i mean what joy having a mother-in-law whose motto is live and let live she's very she's very nice and i think again educationally i quite often think i wish we would just moved to holland and could have given our son a dutch education rather than english one probably would have been better for him
0: oh you've won at mother-in-laws that sounds great and i wonder you know you say saying that you're fine when you're not do you still do that with the sort of work that you've done around grief and around mental health things and and around therapy are, and of being more authentic as well? Are you still, is there still that temptation to say I'm fine when, when you're not?
1: I think there hugely is, yeah, in my normal life as a civilian. Okay. Again, sometimes I think that maybe the reason I write these books is just to force myself into an honest position. But it's very strange that Again, quite often I'll find myself in a situation where I'll be, like, say, on a stage and will be really honest with all the people in the audience, strangers, theoretically, and then a week later in my actual real life, I'll be lying about what I feel. Probably to someone who doesn't... This is is why my richest relationships probably are with people who know me but have also read me, because I'm just much more honest about the darker side. It's that... You know, it's that kind of good girl pressure, isn't it? And also just the desperate fear of moaning or not being grateful when everyone, you know, I do. I am fortunate, very comparatively fortunate. And I do think that just then I always feel a bit guilty or, you know, not wanting to take up other people's time. So, yeah, I still feel that massive pressure just to say that everything's okay. And I always want to bolt, uh, like when I go to the doctor's, just, I just look around the waiting room and then always get filled with this sort of self-loathing that I'm going to ask for attention and that the, the person over there is going to get less time and attention because I'm asking for it. I don't want other people to feel this way. That's the thing, isn't it? Still quite ingrained in me to not, you know, just to say, thank you, yeah, thank you very much. Oh, yes, I'm fine. Yes, that's fine. Yes, that's yeah. fine. Yes, don't worry. Don't, you know, don't let me take up space with my awful demands.
0: I'm really interested in the link between... Between depression and ingratitude, and yeah, the shame that comes with it—it feels as though everything has to come with the with the preamble of, of course, I know I'm privileged, and of course, I yeah, there's so many things to be thankful for, but you can't help at what you feel, and as you say, you wouldn't judge other people for feeling that way.
1: No, it's a really strange thing, and of course, the the lower my mood is, the more inclined I am to do that to myself. But then again, I'm not sure the modern world helps. I do have to have a very 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 arm's length relationship with social media because if you go on social media it's full of people shouting at each other that they should check their privileges yeah particularly twitter which i also like but i mean i find it very addictive it's nice of course because there are interesting people there i mean it doesn't have to make me feel bad about myself and i find this interesting not only does it make me feel bad about myself it makes me feel that there's something wrong with me if i'm not feeling bad about myself Oh, gosh. How could I, you know, what kind of insane, privileged egomaniac could I be to live in this terrible world without feeling that it's all terrible and everything's going to heaven in a handcart type thing? So that's obviously something to well reverse out of. So I'm really careful, really careful yeah. about that. But, I mean, technology is a tricky one. I have to be really careful with that. I could very easily, again, just be... Even when I sort of bar myself off social media, I could be like refreshing my emails all the time, wanting the next, you know, wanting a bit of bright lights and attention. And it's not good for me to do that. It's good for me to go out for a walk on my own without my phone or get in the bath with a book.
0: And I also read, read that you have, as well as sort of social media and cutting back on booze and social media, that EMDR has been helpful for you, which I'm fascinated by and I've never experienced. Can you tell me a little more about that?
1: I always find it difficult to explain because even people, even practitioners, don't fully understand why it works. It's so it's a specific trauma therapy, and that someone who read my book but also knew me suggested it, and it was developed in America with Vietnam veterans, I think. And it's quite simple in some ways. It's to do with bilateral movement, so you you look from left to right. I mean, I don't really understand why it works, except it really, you know, it really does. And I had a great EMDR therapist and she said straight away, I can, she says, you don't have to be having these panic attacks. What I find interesting now when I read my first book is it's quite clear to me it's written by someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder. People ask me about that book and they, they don't ask it from that perspective. They ask from the perspective of how well written it is. They say things like, or they say how did you remember that so vividly and it's like well i remember that so vividly because it was playing in a loop on my head for years and years and i think i think this would be a nice phd thesis for someone to look at memoirists books and then see which of them uh, whether or not they've they could probably a lot of them could be made to feel a bit better by having some emdr it doesn't change your memory or take away your memory it just makes it less intense and it's less like you are it, so the one of the things so the night my brother was knocked over like for years and years and years I still felt like I was in the road with him and you know and I could feel it literally be there so I was always time traveling to that moment of being in the road with his unconscious body whereas the thing EMDR will do for you is you can still sort of see that but it's more like I'd be at a distance I'm not I'm not in the road and I'm not this is the significant bit I'm not I can control my breath and all that sort of thing. I used to have a lot of like really bad, well, I mean, panic attacks where I would hyperventilate and start to shake. And I don't have those anymore. And, and EMDR, I think, really fixed that for me. And it taught me a lot of things. And it was really helpful with the stopping drinking. It's good. To, it's good with addictions. I'm not sure I'd have been able to do. I'd, I'd have been able to without it. I find it incredibly fascinating, and I always I love being asked about it, and then always worry I don't do a good job of explaining it. But it is a difficult thing to explain, and it's it's creeping into books now. People talk about it a bit, but I could wherever, wherever anyone explains it, I can see they're having the same problem I have. I think yeah, I, I think that sounds fascinating. I think it's enough. To,
0: you've done a beautiful job, and it's it, I think it's really helpful for people listening who want to find out more and see if that could be helpful for them. I've, I've heard you speak to the wonderful Julia Samuel also, and I'm interested in how much specifically grief counselling or coming to terms with your grief and finally being allowed to grieve and mourn has been helpful. I was really interested to hear you talk about accommodating the grief rather than any sort of acceptance, which doesn't feel possible. How has that been for
1: you? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's always really difficult for me to unpick what what was what? You know, my brother was knocked over when I was 17. were then followed a horrendous eight years until he died when I was 25. You know, key adolescent and young adult territory. I find it very difficult to work out what, if anything, what's related to him and what, if anything, isn't related to him. Because everything, in a way, feels about what what happened to him. Where I feel I've got to, which feels really good, is to know what went wrong for me, I think, was that I kept waiting to be fixed. So I had this notion, and again, because people kept saying to me, people kept saying to me things like, it'll take a year. So I sort of gritted my teeth for this magical year, nothing changed. And then I thought there was something really wrong with me. Whereas now I don't expect to ever feel fixed of that. And I do, it's a paradox, really in accepting that I will always feel sad about him I actually feel a lot less not exactly a lot less sad, I feel a lot less sort of grief struck I feel a lot less disabled, a lot less paralysed, a lot less uh, sort of stuck in it so accepting the sadness and no longer hoping that it will go away has liberated me actually and I think that there's this I think really poisonous idea that and some people think this is about therapy as well, that something might happen and then therapy would somehow restore you to factory settings. And that's really what I've moved radically away from. And in my own thoughts now, it's almost like, I, I don't I hate that, like what doesn't kill you, make you stronger, makes you stronger because it's not that. I don't feel stronger as a result of what's happened. But I have learned, I do know things. And I now think about how and it is a really modern idea. I mean, it wasn't long ago at all that people expected if they had a few children that some of them would die. Whereas now we yes. almost we now we now think having a child die would be so bad that we almost don't expect mothers to survive it. That's quite a quick change. What I feel now is this sort of modern idea that life is a shop or a spa, and it isn't. If life's anything, it's a learning experience. So therefore things happen and you learn and you hopefully come out the other side and what I've um, I am very pleased with this which I've uh, experienced a lot over the past year where of course uh, you know everybody's life has been complex and I've had a few big things friend of mine talks about surfing the big waves and I like that I've had a few big waves to surf and the thing so even on the most difficult days what I realized was I could say to myself at the end of the day something that would but that would just give me enough mindset change to cope with it. And what I say to myself is, oh, I say, I learnt a lot about being a human being today. And it really, it just, again, it's just enough of a shift from something along the lines of, that was awful. Why has that happened to me? I don't deserve that. Haven't I got enough on without having to cope with that? Like, that's one way of thinking about it, isn't it? And a yes. the shift to, well, I learnt a lot about being a human being today. And it's not, it's definitely not like, oh, well, that was a bit rocky, but maybe I should try and think about all the things I that I'm, all my various privileges, et cetera, et cetera, mm. which can feel a bit self-punishing. So, yeah, so that's my, that's my latest thing.
0: And has this year been hard with the kind of quietness of, you know, right? you're writing a new book anyway, and also just being away from people and the world has been slower and quieter. Has that been more painful than usual or have you done enough of the work so that actually you were sort of ready
1: well I mean I do feel like that a bit I do feel that the people that have struggled most in the virus is when they've not yet like had a big thing and I did Mm. very early doors when I did fear I do remember I mean I did there was a week where I just thought I was going to throw up the whole time I was so anxious that would have been like that pre-lockdown week probably Like when there was all that speculation about lockdown and what it means. And of course, what I did was I stopped. I didn't start drinking, which I felt very pleased about. I wanted to, but I didn't. I knew it wouldn't improve things. So that was a good thing. But I did. I was loads of social media and watching news, which isn't good for me. And I did feel terrible. And then I thought, actually, what this is is this is a, i've got loads of theories about this i've written a whole book a manual for heartache about what to do when life doesn't go your way what i need to do is use this as a ground for my theories and again that that changed it for me it's been hard in again i i am fortunate so in lots of ways you know i'm always I'm often thinking about people that must must have it so much worse so i did try to keep an awareness of my good fortune but in some ways i think it's been quite rich and actually that i'm not necessarily like not a fan of the enforced slowdown. I do very much miss people because I'm a very social creature but I mean some people don't my husband, it's been sad for my husband because he hasn't been able to go to Holland and see his mum for a long time now but really with the uh, the exception of a tiny handful of people I think he quite likes not having to interact with the world as much. Where, so I think I think there's so many fascinating sort of virus divides both in your circumstances and what sort of person you are as to what makes you feel different. I know people who really dislike having to follow rules, but for other people it doesn't matter. So it kind of it all so that's all in play, isn't it? My thing is just worry worry really, anxiety and I always feel I'm very I'm a bit contagious when it comes to emotions. So the fact that everyone else is very stressed and unhappy. I find it difficult not to sort of catch that. And also pass it on, I
0: guess to I, I've been going to try not to pass it on to kids. Are you and homeschooling as well, when you're spending more time with them as well. How have you found that, trying not to, but not mollycoddling our children? That's the tricky bit.
1: I mean, I think it's so unbelievably difficult. And I think homeschooling is so hard. My son has a few additional needs, so he can't do it on his own. Um, and I'm really fascinated to know whether, you know, is everybody having to give the level of input that we are? I don't know. I mean, it's again, it's one of those things where it, it really matters. I've got friends that have got... Sort of very well resourced children who are happily educating themselves uh, in all sorts of things. It's been an opportunity for us to grow closer, I think, in some ways. And also, you know, my son doesn't really like school, so he quite likes not having to go there. He'd rather be taught by he'd rather the home arrangement. So again, mm-hmm. what that how that's going to impact us on the in the long run, I'm not sure. But it's so, but it's so complex I think and again it's something I always think as well how again very fortunate we we're literate and I've got plenty of computers you know we could I just think how dreadful it must be because it's hard enough for us and I think how much worse it must be if you've got other struggles as well. so I, I do yeah. think it's very difficult. but again different people find different things about it difficult, don't they I what my, the thing I mainly did which I've stuck to and I still try to do, and I do think this is a good thing in general. Is to just radically lower my expectations of what I feel entitled to, you know. Yes. And I think that works for, that always, for me, works with pretty much everything. And it's not about thinking of yourself as worthless and not deserving of things. It's not that. It's just back to this thing of not thinking life is a spa or a shop that's supposed to be, you know, you can just click and collect on everything you want.
0: I liked your idea of of, you know, when bad things happen, don't ask why me, but why not me? But, and I think that works for the good stuff too. You can, the actress and writer, Sharon Horgan says like, why not me when it comes to the good stuff and ambition? And it feels like a good way of thinking about things, getting away from this, I guess away from the woe is me and away from the, you know, I was raised Irish Catholic and these sort of lucky things don't happen to people like us and that's not helpful either. So it's, it's more that yes, good and bad will happen. That's how it is.
1: That's exactly that. And that's my dad's thing. Again, raised as an Irish Catholic and extremely poor when he was a boy. And he used to walk with one of his uncles and look at the yachts off the coast of Crosshaven in Cork. And he said to his uncle, like, I'm going to have one of those one of these days. And when I'm grown up, I'm going to have one of those. And his uncle used to say to him, they're not for the likes of us. Yes, that's exactly And then, you know, my dad sort of escaped, sailed away. So I think all that sort of thing is interesting. Yes, very much. Why not me? That's for the full gamut of things, isn't it? How have your parents found
0: this year? They deserve their own books as well. They are fascinating and have been through so much. But how have they found this year? I I was very interested in the way you talked about you were all trying to protect each other so much. After your brother's accident, and and that actually there was a lot of not talking about sad things. How how are they with all of that now?
1: Yeah, I mean, much. I think in some ways, ultimately, well, I mean, I think we're in a fairly good place at the moment. It's been pretty difficult this year. Again, it's that it's sort of retrenching, isn't it? They, we, we've, we've all, we've all just decided to just care about to lasso in what we care about to things that we can. Control. I mean, we're really lucky at the moment because we're in a childcare bubble with them, which is the main, you know, because the first lockdown that wasn't allowed, so that was really hard, uh and that's the big difference this time for me. And I did, but again, and then I immediately told myself off for having a bad attitude about it. But there was some speculation a couple of weeks ago that they were going to get rid of the, you know, they were going to get rid of the childcare bubble, and I did, I did say like. <laughs> If they get it's that press conference, saying, if they get rid of the childcare bubble, I'm just going to go mental. I'm going to stop trying, and then I just thought, no, that's not the right way to think about it. And I, and I did even before that and then they didn't change it. But even before then, I had talked to myself back round to. Doesn't matter yeah. what happens, I will be able to cope. So much of it is, and and this happened like through sort of various bits of therapies, realizing that really what I'm frightened of is the feeling that I won't cope. Something bad will happen, I won't cope. And that it's not really the bad things that I'm frightened of so much as my coping ability. And what does not coping look like? Uh, not coping, I don't know, really. I mean, going mad, probably, is what I really fear. You know, going mad, ending up dead in the ditch, not being able to look after my son, disappointing everyone that kind of thing. And the fear of that being so great that it stops me doing things or paralyses me with anxiety about things because I'm worried I won't cope. But now I've thought, well, actually, if I look at it the other way around and if I think actually, the odd thing about that is I'm actually a really good coper. (laughs) I'm good in a crisis. So so it's just I've spent a lot more time telling myself I'm good in a crisis than (laughs) if that happens, I won't cope.
0: Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of people about a kind of hypervigilance that develops if you you experience trauma as you did and and the the comedian Robin Ince talks about hypervigilance that definitely came out when he became a parent and I certainly, my sister dying of cot death when my kids were that same age it's that, I'm going to check everything I'm going to check everything and as you say, being good in a crisis is that something that is ongoing then for you that sort of being good at coping but fearing that you won't and so having all bases covered
1: Yeah, I mean certainly the I've got a lot better at thinking that I will cope and that I'm good in a crisis, and that, and again, that that's one of the the unlooked for gifts. So, so I don't like this. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I read, um, I wrote an introduction for this book called Notes on Blindness by a man called John Hull, who went well, he he calls it deep blindness, like completely blind. And it was this, but he said he said to a he said there is a way in which the blindness is a gift. It's not a gift I wanted. <laughs> But it is a gift. And that's what I now feel about all my more difficult experiences. That They're the unwanted gifts. I didn't mm-hmm. want them, but there is a gift. There's a gift element. <laughs> um, yeah. And the gift element is that you you learn things for the future. So the hypervigilance is really hard. So I'm very, and I, I might start crying now, but as I, so my son's now 11. And, of course, my brother was knocked over when he was 16. And when he started at big school, which he did in September, you know, in the sort of the... He never looked like him in primary school uniform, where they had shorts and little polo necks, but in that sort of school uniform and just watching him go off and being... Because he doesn't have a great deal of road sense. And just, like, just... I mean, that was really think yeah thinking i might be sick or whatever just the utter terror of but again i sort of did get over i got over that um you know i managed i sort of stayed present with it but that that is the that is the hypervigilance. i think yeah and that's the thing once you know something can happen and julia samuel helped me actually just to accept this the the point is that one of the things that my brother's accident taught me is that it can all go in a second. Everything can just be destroyed in a second. And the problem is once you do know that, you know that because of your sister dying, once you know that, you can't really unlearn that lesson. So there's a more positive way with that, which I try, try to focus on, which is that being close to death or being close to, you know, knowing that can make you see life as precious. So you can try, I try to keep it there. But the other side of that is more like the, well, sooner or later, and probably sooner, (laughs) everything's going to be destroyed. So why am I going to, you know, so it's just how to to sort of see it really. So that's where, that's, yeah, that's where I'm at with it. And I feel, I don't know, it's been so interesting, the virus year, because I suppose, you know, I mean, I've I've had no difficulties in the, You know, nobody I know has been badly ill uh, or anything like that. So it's all been the kind of like modern life difficulties of, you know, truncated life and stressful. all of which are real. I think that, again, I think the sort of the mental health toll of the pandemic is a terrible thing that that people are suffering from dreadfully. But it's a bit like your earlier question in a funny kind of way. I slightly feel I had a head start. If it, if life is an endurance course, then I'd kind of if coronavirus is, I don't know, in is the ninth obstacle course. I'd been I'd seen a lot of the earlier obstacle courses. You know, it's
0: yeah.
1: I'd experienced those things before and felt um but that's that I think is the best thing about therapy in a way. It's it's that if you if you can learn to see if you can learn to see things differently, that's something you can take into your own future.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thinking about the kind of the mental toll, Catelyn Moran's new book, More Than a Woman. She talks about the importance of optimism in terms of, and I haven't really thought about it in this respect of teaching our children that even though the world can seem terrible and the news, and we've had to be really careful about having the radio on, even with the news bulletins. Because I don't want kids growing up thinking that the world is terrible. We can't let them think it's not worth it and let them grow up thinking that being a grown up is too hard. I I struggle with that kind of fine line between not mollycoddling and also not making it seem like a grown up is, is a terrible thing to be.
1: But I think it's really important. Um, I absolutely adore Philippa Perry's childcare books.
0: Yes, I just put a copy on my husband's desk. He has not read it yet. But still.
1: No, I've read a lot of that out loud to my husband because, of course, he oh, wouldn't, yes. he, wouldn't, he wouldn't like read a whole book himself about it or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a good book. Yeah. But she talks in that about the importance of optimism, and it was really that that made me see. I would say optimism at the moment. I've been thinking about this a lot. I think it's a moral, and if you're that way, on a spiritual duty to find a way to be optimistic, probably especially if you've got kids. because I often think about what it would be like if I didn't. And I don't think I'd almost, maybe I wouldn't bother. I, I don't know. But I think you can't, um, you have to work out a way. But I mean, it's difficult. I mean, my my son genuinely thinks the world's gonna end quite soon because he's been taught at school about climate change. And it's that very odd thing, isn't it? I'm not 100% sure he's not right it's very different it's a very odd time to be alive isn't it when sometimes i watch yeah. the news especially anything i had i just had to stop consuming trump a few years ago because it's so peculiar that it does you know in all my difficulties with mental health i've never been psychotic I've all, especially now i don't drink i've always got a handle on what's reality so i don't you know i might feel sad and miserable and like i've had enough but i, I kind of know what's what but i find that too much media in recent years has just really has really challenged that because it all seems so unbelievable and then trying to find a sensible way to communicate sort of trump to a child i would
0: like to go back to john craven's newsbeat once a day and that's what we all watch and that's how we know what's going on
1: yeah i do, we um don't we're careful i'm careful with images for myself i find it and again i really wish i hadn't seen the trump supporters with their uh, uh, there's something very disturbing about that i don't i don't i can't sleep if i think about armed trump supporters rampaging around and it's back to that thing again i think there's something about modern news filling your head up with all this stuff that you can't control that you have no impact over Mm. so we're careful i'm careful about images for me and then i read a i read a real newspaper like a couple of times a week or something but a few days old and it really shows you again how Oh, yeah, I'm reading Monday's newspaper. Like, yeah, I didn't need to be there on Monday. I don't really need to be there now. I'm just sort of updating myself on what the situation is. Uh, But I think it's a massive change, actually, not one that everybody's caught up with, because I think a lot about how my grandparents really would have thought it was their civic duty to be informed. I think it probably was then. Whereas now, I think if you tried to consume everything that's available, uh, or if I tried to consume everything available, I would go completely mad. remember having this conversation with someone who said, like, so, you, you know, so they said, so you really think um, it was about I was saying about how a lot of the things for me- I do for my mental health separately, they're quite small and seem a bit banal. And can seem a bit, it's difficult sometimes to say them to people because if, including me, like if you are really depressed and despairing, it can be really annoying when people ask you how many units of alcohol you drink or, you know, have you thought about getting some fresh air lately. But actually, for me, they all block onto each other and they are, they are that. And somebody said to me, like, do you really think they make that much difference? I said, well, i tell you what, I said, I do know that there are a certain amount of things I could do. I could decide to do these things. And I would be raving mad probably within about 10 days. Yeah, yeah. I could go out and I could get really drunk. I, I won't go into them. We probably know what they are. But it would include having the news cycle on all the time. Yes. That would be a contributing yeah. factor in how did you go from being like, all right, and, you know, basically doing a podcast.
0: <laughs> Rolling news. Rolling
1: news. and <laughs> Rolling news would be part of it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I I used to, yeah, wail at the moon against the idea that why can't I do all the fun things that other people do and not be okay? Because I can't, because I'm different and we are all different and that's just how it is. And I, I'm really interested in your work to read when you're speaking to your parents or times when you've been growing up or in your 20s and 30s, the kind of the pressure to be okay and to, and to live well, not necessarily to be happy, but I wonder whether you feel that more, I felt as the sole surviving sibling I had I had to be okay. I couldn't do anything completely daft because my mum could not take it. And it sounds from from reading your work that you had a similar a similar thing that you kind of had to look after yourself because otherwise it was just too terrible to contemplate.
1: Yeah, I think that's true and I think that I think that's how that's how sibling survivors feel, I think. Um and it's very difficult to almost see how you could escape from that. I feel less Again, I've had the good therapy, and so I'm less trying to. T- and I don't even think my parents. I don't think that my parents tried to make me like it. I think I, I. think it was just sort of a burden I took on.
0: Dude, Dad did wasn't keen on your bungee jumping though, was he?
1: Oh no, there was that. Yeah, no, that was a bit of a. That was a bit of a low point when I went bungee jumping and felt so <laughs> exhilarated. And yeah, my dad was upset. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. Isn't it funny? But yes, I think it's that sort of. I don't know. I think it's a breed of perfectionism, I think, where you feel that you can't... And I think survivor guilt. So perfectionism and survivor guilt rolled up in a really poisonous little package. And I would say I've, you know, made quite a lot of progress into, you know, to shifting that off and just kind of thinking, well, you know, sort of the life that I have is mine to live for my own purposes. Um, Well, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I feel... I'm preoccupied with what my responsibilities are to my son which I think are weighty you know I think if you're going to have a child because you don't necessarily realize it before you have have one that's the thing but I think once you've once you've had a child I think then it is a it's a weighty responsibility that you should do your best by that child whatever your best is so I probably shifted shifted a bit to think that and I don't think I think that's probably a appropriate for you know my son and the age that he is and all that um i we have a joke going about how we hope i'm not over parenting him and i had this funny dream the other night why what that i told him i dreamt we i dreamt he'd gone to university in london and i'd followed and i would got a flat around the corner <laughs> <laughs> but in the dream he was as he is now so he needed a bit of help and he, and I, he, and he was saying like I want to go back to the halls of residence and I said I want to help you get across that busy road and he was like no that's embarrassing
0: <laughs> well, I think you wrote you wanted to be a human draft excluder at one point which
1: I think is lovely that's the thing isn't it and to, to sort of smother him but I work I work quite hard I hope to not you know to not sort of give in to that to these impulses because uh, I've seen, you know, growing up, I was quite an alert child. And s- I saw that sort of thing happening with my friends and their parents. I saw what else would happen in the family that then would affect the way the parents were with their child. And always, you know, even then from a really young age, I always thought. Did you? You noticed that around your peers? Gosh. Yeah, I was a great noticer as a child. Right. Um, like Anne of Green Gables, I think. I really, yeah. really, really noticed things and noticed a lot about the adult world and thought about it and what it meant probably because I think adults aren't maybe that used to children being so noticing so yeah they don't they kind of don't bother to hide it so oh that's interesting yeah um I wonder whether along with the survivor guilt
0: and the idea of trying to be the most helpful version of ourselves that we can be as a responsibility to our children. I wonder whether the authenticity part comes into that as well, in that we have to teach our kids, if we have them, that being themselves is is good and is worth it. I liked something that you said about, um, well, maybe it ties into imposter syndrome as well, but the idea that if we don't think we're being real, we can negate any affection we have from others. And that struck me as hugely helpful. The times when I have tried to be somebody else or pretend to be someone else, especially in like early relationships to please boys, that then you, yeah, you you don't trust what you're getting back, the affection you're getting back because you think, well, it's not based on me. I think that's that, that struck me in terms of parenting as well as a useful lesson.
1: Yeah, it probably is in terms of parenting, isn't it? I think it's just, I think it's just, well, I mean, certainly it's why I try to be really authentic, because then I won't suffer that thing of like, oh, oh God, they seem to really like me, but is it because I wasn't being my, you know, so. But I do think one of my things, I think it was before the virus happened, was I wanted to live authentically myself and to do whatever I could to put in effort to love my fellow humans unconditionally.
0: (laughs) Is this Which like
1: your New Year's resolution, or you just <laughs> yeah? <it> well, was. <laughs> was my somewhere. New Year's resolutions. I think in twenty twenty, nice. Yeah, and I do. I mean, I'm doing pretty well with both of them. I think both. I mean, pretty big challenges, both of them. But and, you know, and I sort of fail all the time. But then get up and kind of keep going. And in going back, I guess to the start,
0: it of course external validation isn't what we should be aiming for, but it must feel good to know that you are being useful that you've made a difference in terms of readers getting in touch and also you know that the last act of love is now on the syllabus for law students isn't it it's things are moving on
1: lawyers and medics are always getting in touch to say that they've been reading it as part of their studies um that does feel very good to be useful and i'm always very happy when i can be useful and that now does feel as well a little bit i think initially i was probably a bit too into that i don't mean that in a self-judgmental way just I don't know, there was some something a bit out of whack with how... I think when you make work, you've just got to be really careful. The best way to do it and stay sane is if you can invest in the meaning and purpose of the work itself rather than the response to the work or else you're always like able to be flicked over like a little weeble. And that's what I yes. try to do. So I do feel now in a very good place. And amazingly, my first two books, whenever people said... I've all, I like it when people tell me things about themselves... But when people would say to me things like "Oh, you're so brave. You're so amazing," it just honestly just used to give me the shivers. I just couldn't take. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, but but see how well I'm taking it today. Something you are something good has it. and I really notice with my third book, with Dear Reader, when people say nice things about me to me, I'm able to just think, "Oh, wasn't that nice that they think that." So I don't quite know, I don't know what thing, what book I read or what mindset changed I did or what bit of therapy I did created that shift. But it's really nice and it means I'm a lot less, well, again, maybe it's just to do with authentically living because I do feel I'm really authentically living. So these days, if somebody likes me, I do feel, but I'm, you know, it's that funny thing. I'm not sure I really am any different to how I was before. I just, it just feels, I do think a lot of life is in the intention, isn't it? The fact that I've stated that's my thing. I'm going to be, I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to n- not ever. I'm going to. I'm going to try really hard not to, you know, lie or pretend to be better than I am, or, or mm. you know, by which I mean happier than I am. I'm going to try yeah. really hard to be authentic, and yeah, I mean it's worth it because I enjoy being alive. I would say more than lots of times in my life, even though, you know, there's fairly chunky challenges.
0: Yeah. And I
1: think you've
0: talked about it a lot in your work, but I I like, to, I like to ask everyone, you know, what would you say now to your 21-year-old self? With all that you know, how would you advise yourself looking back now? And I know that age 21 for you is very different to age 21 for many people, but with the kindness you are able to afford yourself now.
1: Yeah, I just—I think I'd just say, like, you're lovely. I mean, you're just lovely. Just be easy on yourself, really. I'd like to say that to all 21-year-olds as well, not just me. I do feel incredibly moved by young people, you know, because they're all so beautiful. But they're also all so... Again, even, I mean, I would have thought I was really grown up when I was 21, whereas now 21 it feels like a a very young person to me. But I do have this sort of desire to just put my arms around people and just but yeah if i could tell anybody to any any, anything to anyone i would just say like kind of like know how lovely you are and know that it's funny i'm not at all religious but lately i just keep finding myself using this it just comes out of me this religious language what i wanted to say then is i want to say to the people like you're a child of god you deserve to be here i mean i'm not sure i even really believe in god but somehow there's not a i keep wanting to express myself spiritually in a way that i don't really have a vocabulary for So we need a secular equivalent. I know, yeah, I'm very Mm. into secular equivalents for things. But I do want to say to people, like, you deserve to be here. You all deserve to be here. You're all beautiful and you're all lovely. And just work out how to be here. And the other thing, if I'm allowed another piece of advice, which wouldn't be for me at 21, it's for the now, I think there's such a drive towards division. So I think all of us could be well served whenever we find ourselves hating someone just draw back from it, whoever it is, you know, and again, it's not necessarily better to hate some people rather than other people. That's what my wanting to love people unconditionally was about. Because when I looked back at the whole Brexit debacle, I felt really manipulated Like how I'm really not a hate filled person. And yet somehow suddenly I was hating half my country and that just felt really wrong and I felt manipulated into it. I don't know for what purpose. But since realising that, I've just really tried to draw. And it's amazing how often, once you clock it, you see it so often. And the virus things, like hating cyclists or hating runners or old people hating young people because they're going to secret parties and young people hating old people because of this, that and the other. It's just, it, it's everywhere once you see it. So that's mm-hmm. what I. that's what I feel if we could all do it. If we all wanted a useful and free... <laughs> yes not easy it's not easy but
0: it is free no but nothing (laughs) is okay thank you so much what a place to
1: end i think
0: you've given lots to think about and i it's very hard to cover all of your work but i would urge anyone listening to read everything kathy's ever written and everyone is still alive is out in july
1: thank you it's been a huge pleasure thank
0: you so much for joining me today Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.